I've been really excited to share with you this morning uh, just, just, you know, what God's been rubbing into my heart. Sometimes passages hit you a little bit differently, and, you know, the privilege of being able to do this is you get to dig in to Scripture pretty deeply, you know, during the week as, as we prepare, and um, it's just, I'm excited to share with you what I feel like God's kind of rubbed into my heart this morning. I'll start out with a story. So I remember when I was like, I would say 30, 31 years old, which was just a few years ago. <laughs> Don't laugh at that, that's insulting to me. No, uh, so I was, you know, I'm 31 years old, my son, I have a 16 year old son, so he was just kind of a baby and we were moving. And um, at that time, I was working here at the church, and I was leading the young adults ministry, like the young kind of 20s, early 30s ministry. And the, the thing that I remember most about leading the, the young adults, besides like teaching and doing weddings and all that sort of stuff, is helping people move. Like we helped people, like every weekend somebody was moving, right? And so it was just like a great way to serve people. And so I don't know how many dressers I've lifted in my life. Like it's gotta be hundreds of them, you know? And so when we were moving, you better believe. I was like, hey, we're moving. Would anybody like to help us? And people are really nice. And so we had a whole bunch of people coming to help us. And so I rented um, a U-Haul, like the, the, biggest U-Haul box truck that you could find, like 30 feet long, 25, 30 feet long, something like that. And um, I, so we had a trailer park at the time, we had a mobile home park at the time, and in the mobile home park was a building. So this is here for a purpose, so here we go. So in the, in the trailer park was like this building like this, and it was vacant, it was like empty, and so we would just use it to like store stuff in, so we had a whole bunch of our stuff stored there, and so I have this U-Haul, I get there early to, you know, like be the good homeowner, so like when people come, they can just start working, you know, and so I pull up the U-Haul, the U-Haul, so the kind of the, the drive went like this way, right, and there was like a planter right here, and so I have this gigantic U-Haul truck, some of you know where this is going, don't you? <laughs> I'm a really good artist, so there we go. So I have this truck, and I have to, maybe here, I want you guys to see this too, because I want you to laugh as well. So I have this truck, and I have to pull it around the side, like I have to go this way. And no one's there, so it's just me, no one's there. Big trailer park, no one's out, no one's around. But I'm very confident in my driving skills, and so I thought, I, I will have no problem with this. And so I, I you know, start driving the truck around the side, and I didn't realize with the building, like you couldn't really see it from the, the side mirrors of the truck, that there was like a three-foot overhang all the way around it that was like this. And so, so like, I'm going around the side, and I feel like I'm doing really good. I'm using my mirrors, and I'm like, I'm not close to the, to the corner of the building that I could see in my mirrors. And then when I get, you know, like, right about here, like, this, this part of the truck, the sidewall, was right about here. All of a sudden, I hear this, like, horrendous, piercing, scratching metal sound. And and like you would think I would go, oh, I hit something. But my first thought was, what is that noise? Is somebody in the park doing something they're not supposed to do? You know? And so I go a little further until the truck like is, it won't go forward anymore. 
And so I'm like, oh no. And I get out of the truck and I look and I had somehow embedded the corner of the building right smack in the side of the box truck, the big side of the box truck. And, and you would think that, like, well, just back it up, right? Okay, like you hit it, back it up. But somehow this defied the laws of physics. So if I backed up, it would rip off the whole front side of the sidewall. And if I kept going forward, it would rip off the whole backside of the sidewall, because I tried it, and it just kept ripping, <laughs> right? Like, this is what's happening. And so, eventually, I get out, and I'm like, I, I, I don't know what to do, and I'm just like, sitting here, staring at the corner of the roof embedded in the U-Haul, and then, and, then, and then some guy from the trailer park, he must have heard the noise, and he, and he walks out, and he just stands next to me, and he's like, Looks like you're stuck. <laughs> and I was like, well, thank you for that helpful observation. And so he tried to help me a little bit more. We couldn't get it until eventually, like literally, I just had to, to pull forward and rip the whole backside of the truck off. Not one of my best moments, right? So, so what's the point in telling you this? By the way, I didn't get the insurance because that's such a waste of money to get the insurance on those things. So what's the point? Imagine if this incident, this stupid incident on my part, imagine if, this is like one of the worst moments of my life. I've had many, this is one of them. What if that's what defi defined the rest of my life? Like what if this stupid thing I did I wish it was like when I was 17 years old, but I was in my early 30s. But what if that like defined the trajectory of the rest of my life? How would my life be different? Well, I would have no future as a truck driver or a bus driver. I wouldn't be allowed to have like an RV. But even more than that, my people would look at me and go, he's irresponsible. He's unreliable. He's incompetent. He's a failure. Imagine the worst moment in your life. Like, let your mind go there. We all have lots of moments that we don't like to talk about, we wish didn't happen. Imagine if your life was defined by your worst moment. Imagine wherever point in your life it was, the rest of your life, people looked at you and defined your life by the worst moment. Would that be fair? Like, would there be anything at all helpful in that of, like, your future and who you are? Like, wouldn't you feel like, that's so wrong. Like, that, that's so unfair. And, and here's the weirdest thing. Like, when, when people do that, if, if, or when we do that to ourselves or we do that to each other, it's almost self-fulfilling, right? Like, when everybody looks at you a certain way, then you almost are, like, resigned to being that way, Right? Well, this morning in the passage that we're going to look at, there's actually a very similar thing happening. One person has done something that's kind of the worst moment in his life. He made a bad decision. And then there's another guy who wants to go, and that bad decision makes you disqualified for these future things. And then another guy says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to define the future of your life by the mistakes of your past. 
So I'm really excited this morning. I think there's so much that we can learn from this um, about ourselves, about our relationships with others, and about our relationship with God. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you flip it open to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. I'll move this out of the way. So... <clears throat> Last week, Nick Braun did a fantastic job uh, in our family service of uh, looking at Jesus and Peter walking on the water. He did a great job. Um, two weeks ago, Dan Cooper, Pastor Dan Cooper, now Pastor Dan Cooper, uh, was in the first part of Acts chapter 15. If you remember, the beginning of Acts chapter 15 is kind of like the first church council. And so you have the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, or really the apostles and the, apost the apostles to the Jews and the apostles to the Gentiles coming together and going, okay, we got Gentiles coming to Jesus. Like, what's protocol here? What do we need to do? And you have the Jewish Christians who said, listen, in order for Gentiles to become Christians, they essentially got to become Jewish first. We got to circumcise them. They need to follow the law and then they can become Christians. And so ultimately, so we have like a little bit of conflict and ultimately where the conflict lands is together they come to the conclusion and they go, listen, if God didn't make it hard for Gentiles to come to him, we shouldn't either. The requirement for them is the same as the requirement for us. It's the requirement for all of us. We're saved by grace through faith. I turn my life over. I submit to King Jesus. He rules my life, and I'm going to be with him forever. That's kind of the beginning of chapter 15. And then you get to verses 22 to 35. And in 22 to 35, it's essentially Paul and Barnabas going back to the Gentiles, bringing a couple of the Jewish Christians uh, that were part of this conversation with them from Jerusalem, uh, Judas and Silas, and they go down to the Gentiles and they share the news with them, right? And it's, this is beautiful. And what it says is, like, the result for the church, so, that, so there's conflict, there's hard things, they worked through the conflict in a healthy way. The result for the church was they rejoiced, they were encouraged, and they were strengthened. They rejoiced, they were encouraged, and they were strengthened, which I think is something, there's something there for us. Like so many times we can look at conflict as like, I don't want to have anything to do with it. I'm just going to avoid it. Or, you know, it's, conflict is always bad. It's always a problem. It raises my stress levels. Like when we deal with it in healthy ways, the result can be just beautiful, like it was for the church. Rejoicing, encouragement, strengthening, and ultimately unity. And then we get to verse 36. So hopefully you're at 1536. And in verse 36, we actually have another incident of some conflict. So here's what it says. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And when they... And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Okay, so this, uh, Acts 15, 36, this kind of marks another transition in the book of Acts. So this is the beginning of the second missionary journey. So up to this point, beginning in chapter 13, um, we had this first missionary journey. There's three of them total that Paul and Barnabas go on. They kind of go out 
um, to all of these different places, sail, walk, travel, um, and they share Jesus with people, and they establish these churches with them. And so now they want to go back to these churches that they have already established and see how they're doing and encourage them, right? And so Paul and Silas go to all of the places that Paul and Barnabas went to on their first journey together, and then Barnabas and Mark go to Cyprus. So Paul and... Uh, Paul and Silas go to every place but Cyprus. Barnabas and Mark go to Cyprus. And so they hit all of the places. We'll talk about this a little bit more in the coming weeks. Like we'll, uh, the next part of the book of Acts kind of details the second missionary journey. So we're told in Colossians 4 that Mark is Barnabas's cousin. Uh, Barnabas is Mark's older cousin. Sometimes in the scriptures, he's called John Mark. And so John Mark, Mark, went with them. You can read about this again in Acts chapter 13. He went with Paul and Barnabas on the, this first missionary journey, but he only went with them at the beginning of the journey to Cyprus and then just a little bit after that. And Mark left them. So Acts 13, 13, it says, in a very matter-of-fact way, that Mark left them and returned to Jerusalem. We're not told specifics here, just that he headed back to Jerusalem, right? And so it kind of seems kind of innocuous, like it's not that big of a deal. He just, he had something going on, and he headed back. We're not given the reason why, and we're not told that anyone was upset about it. But in this passage, in Acts chapter 15, it's clear that Mark leaving was actually really frustrating to Paul. One commentator that I read suggested that maybe Paul wasn't even just frustrated with Mark's lack of commitment, but he was also maybe still a little bit frustrated with Barnabas. In the book of Galatians, which Galatians is written right around this time. Galatians is probably the first book in the New Testament that's written. It's written right around this, this Acts 15 time. And in Galatians 2, Paul writes that part of what led to this council in the first part of Acts chapter 15 is that Peter started to not associate with some of the Gentile Christians when some of these Jewish Christians started coming down to Jerusalem. And then Barnabas started doing it too, right? And so that what this commentator thought was that probably really frustrated Paul. And maybe as they're beginning to head out on their second missionary journey, there's still some unresolved issues there, right? So Paul wasn't in favor of bringing Mark with them, and Barnabas was eager to give Mark a second chance and not let his, you know, worst moment, and I'm, you know, we're reading between the lines a bit here, but not let his worst moment define the rest of his life, at least in the eyes of the leaders of the church. And it says they have sharp disagreement. And, you know, like we can just kind of breeze past that in, in, as we're reading this. But, but that's actually some very strong language there in the Greek. It's like sharp contentions, sharp disagreement. The emphasis actually is on the sharp. And so there's like, there's some irritation, there's some rub that they're experiencing here. This is like an angry dispute. There's some intensity in their disagreement. And Paul decides to take Silas with him. Again, Silas was the guy that came down with him a little bit earlier from Jerusalem. He decides to take Silas with him, and Barnabas goes his separate way with Mark. And then interestingly, I think this is interesting, we actually never hear from Barnabas again in the book of Acts. 
This is it. This is the last time that we hear from him. For all intents and purposes, the rest of the book of Acts just kind of chronicles God using Paul to help his church grow outward, grow to the ends of the earth, as it says in Acts 1.8. And so I think we can read that, like we can read this story, and if we're not careful, we can come to some wrong conclusions. For example, like Paul must have been right then, and Barnabas must have been wrong. See, Mark and Barnabas, they sort of fade off into nothingness. We don't hear anything more about them. But Paul and Silas, we hear lots more about them. The rest of the book of Acts is about them, building the church with effectiveness. Paul must have been right. Barnabas must have been wrong. Or we can make the, come to the conclusion in thinking that there's just no room for mistakes or errors or immaturity or weakness in God's people for growing the kingdom. Like, if you make a mistake, if you do the wrong thing, then like my daughter says today, you're done. <laughs> Some of you with younger kids know that this is what the kids are doing these days. You're done. She does it like this, she goes, you're done, like that. <laughs> But, but we can get into this thinking and think, listen, this is what happens when, when leaders of the church aren't perfect, when, when you make a mistake, when you have some immaturity, when you have some weaknesses, well, then you're done. You got to get out of the way. Move on with your life. Let the A team move forward with the hard work of ministry. And listen, I'll tell you, if either of those are your conclusions from these verses, you're missing it. Those shouldn't be our takeaways from these verses. But I will, I will tell you, and we'll look at it here in just a second, there are some incredible takeaways from these verses in regards to our relationships with others and our relationship with God. So I'm excited to look at it. So, um, so one of the ways that we... Uh, interpret, and the, the theological word is exegete scripture, the way that we understand scripture, um, one of the really helpful ways to do that is when you're in any particular passage, you know, usually in a passage you have main people, main persons, or groups of persons in that passage. And one of the great ways to interpret scripture is to go, okay, so what do I learn from each of these people or groups of people, right? And so when you read this passage, we got some people and some groups of people. So we got Paul. That's an obvious one. We've got Barnabas. That's an obvious one. We've got Mark. He's in there. We got Silas. Who else do we got? We got the church. It says the brothers, right? When they leave, the brothers kind of pray for them. I think we can call that the church. And then there's one more. You know who it is? It's amazing how easy it is for us to forget this last person in this passage. God, right? Like, he's there. He's there. Okay, so what I want to do with the rest of our time is I really want to look at the characters or groups of characters in this passage. For time's sake, I'm not going to look at Silas. We're going to look at Silas much more in coming weeks. Um, I'm not going to delve into the church praying for them right now. But we're going to focus on Paul and Barnabas. Actually, I'll flip them. I'll do Barnabas first. Mark and God. So Barnabas, what did Barnabas do? Well, I think it's really interesting to me 
Um, do you know what Barnabas' name means? I actually said this earlier, I think in Acts chapter 4. Barnabas' name means, anytime you see bar, it means son of in the scriptures, right? And so his name means son of encouragement or son of consolation or son of comfort. That's what his name means. Interestingly, that's not his real name. His real name is Joseph. Do you know how I got the name Barnabas? He got the name Barnabas because the apostles gave him that nickname because he was an encourager. Isn't that interesting? And so Barnabas, the encourager, does exactly what his name implies here for Mark. He didn't let the worst, or at least one of the worst decisions in Mark's life define the rest of it. And again, we don't know the details here, and so we have to read between the lines. What we have here is what we have here. But these people's lives were much more than what's written down in this passage, right? And so as we interpret this, as we dig into this and start to apply things to our lives, we gotta kind of read between the lines in some of these things. And so um, Barnabas had, I'm sorry, Mark had left Paul and Barnabas apparently for less than good reasons, at least in, Mar in Paul's eyes. And so maybe, why did he leave? Maybe he was scared? I don't know. These are what some of the theologians think. Maybe he was scared. Maybe um, he missed his home. Maybe he was struggling with kind of being stretched and being uncomfortable all the time and having a message that you're taking to people that most people reject. And then not only reject, but many of them don't like you. They hate you because of the message that you're bringing to them. Was it his own immaturity? Was it a particular sin of his? We don't know for sure, but it must have been a big deal, so much so that Paul felt like he shouldn't be invited back. But Barnabas, Barnabas wouldn't allow that to happen. Barnabas believed in Mark's future despite the shortcomings of his past. And even as I say that, like, doesn't, isn't there something beautifully attractive about that? Like, don't you want people to respond to you that way? to believe in your future despite the shortcomings of your past. And by the way, so just so we don't forget, this is also like exactly what Barnabas did for Paul, right? Like, do you remember Paul's story? Paul goes from, you know, being this persecutor of Christians, jailing them, being okay with them being killed, to all of a sudden having this experience in Acts 9 with the risen Jesus and his life is transformed and he's like, I am a Christian now. And everybody's like, what? No way. The apostles are like, no, 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 no. Who's the one person that believed in his future despite the shortcomings of his past? Well, it was Barnabas, right? So when I look at Barnabas in this passage, did we throw it up there? In this passage, here, here's kind of my first point with this. Barnabas believed in Mark's future despite the shortcomings of his past, and we should do the same for others. Barnabas believed in his future despite the shortcomings of his past, and then bring it into your own life. So should we. Reminded me of a couple passages. Hebrews 10, 24. Let us consider a couple passages among many in the scriptures that speak to this. Let us consider how to stir one another, stir up one another to love and good works, which is exactly what Barnabas did for Mark. He stirred him up. Even when he was down, he stirred him up to love and good works. Romans 15, 1 and 2. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. 
Let each of us please his neighbor for his good and build him up. Interestingly, if, if you know the result of Barnabas um, believing in Mark, the, the result of it is that eventually Mark is this tremendous blessing to Paul himself, right? I think, I think this is so interesting. Later in his ministry, again, this is kind of happening um, say around 50 AD, somewhere in that period. Later in Paul's ministry, Mark is a huge blessing to him. So in uh, Colossians 4.10, he says, if, if Mark comes to you, here's what you need to do. Greet him really warmly. He deserves it. Essentially, that's what he says. In 2 Timothy 4.11, he says something to the effect of, well, I'll look at these a little bit more here in a second, something to the effect of um, uh, uh, Mark is helpful to me in my ministry, very helpful to me in my ministry. So interesting, right? Eventually, Barnabas believing in Mark, Paul not believing in Mark, Mark's life is actually a blessing to Paul. Isn't that interesting? See, Barnabas seemed to have this great capacity to believe in others and not define them by their worst mistakes. He was gracious to them. He was generous in extending mercy when people, when people screw up, when people do the wrong thing. So, so think about yourself now. How do you do with this? Like, are you gracious to other people's weaknesses and their immaturities and their shortcomings? Or do you maybe naturally, if you're honest, define people by their worst moments or their biggest struggles? Like, is it, are you somebody that if you're honest, it's easy to just kind of write people off? This person wronged me. I'm done with them. This person screwed up bad. That's just how they are. I'm done with them. Never again will I trust them, right? It's easy to do that. Or are we more like Barnabas? Somebody that can overlook people's offenses and generously extend grace and mercy to them. I'll bet many of us in this room could learn a lot from Barnabas. Right? How about Paul? Look at Paul. So, so admittedly, this is some conjecture on my part. Um, this is opinion on my part, but it's not baseless conjecture. And you can disagree with me on this, and that's fine. I've been, I've been wrong once before. That's a joke. Many, many times before. So, so, so hold this with an open hand. But as I read this passage, and I think deeply about this, which again is what we're supposed to do, we're supposed to dig in and process and put ourselves in their shoes. As I do that with this, I think that this is one of Paul's bigger mistakes in his Christian life and life as a leader in the church. I think in this passage, we actually see Paul's immaturity. So many times we can look at the, the folks in Scripture, especially somebody like Paul, is like, man, they got it all together. They got it all figured out. They have no issues. They have no struggles. They never mess up. I think here we see Paul's matured, immaturity. I think Paul was somebody who was so driven. I think he's one of the most driven people who's ever walked on this earth. And that can be really good because he was driven by the Lord to share the gospel with people that didn't yet know Jesus. But it can also be really bad because it can cause you to steamroll people, right? When you're too driven, it can cause you to see people in more of a transactional sort of way. You know what I mean by that? 
like see people as just a means to an end, right? Like you're just some, you're gonna help me accomplish the things that I'm driven to do. He was an achiever. And so I don't think, as you look at Mark and Mark leaving them, in my opinion, I don't think any reason would have been a good reason for Mark to leave Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary journey. I think Paul was so driven, there is no good reason that you would leave the mission for spreading the gospel around the world. And so when Mark left, I think Paul was like, you're done. I'm done with you. I will find someone else who is willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of the gospel. This is my opinion on this. I think we, we get a chance to witness uh, one of Paul's worst mistakes and his immaturity earlier on in his faith. That's why I think Colossians 4.10 and 2 Timothy 4.11 are like such a gift to us in understanding this passage. I referred to them earlier. I'll read it to you now. Colossians 4.10. So this is Paul writing both of these. In 4.10, he says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. He calls him out right there very specifically. And then in 2 Timothy 4.11, he says, so Paul's, this is, I'll get to this in a second. Paul's writing kind of at the end of his life here, and he says, Luke is alone with me. Get Mark and bring him with you for he's very useful for me in ministry. I think that one is particularly helpful, again, because Paul's writing at the end of his life. This is the last writing that we have of Paul. So this is the one where he says, you know, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. My time of departure is near. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. You know, this is, this is that passage at the very end of the letter. So now Paul's an older man, more mature, more wise, and he has a better perspective. And at the end of the letter, he says, and and get Mark. Mark's very useful to me in my ministry. So so here's my second point as I look at Paul in this. I said it this way. Paul was humble enough to see his mistakes and make them right, and so should we. I think Paul was, I think he messed up, but I think Paul was humble enough to see his mistakes and make them right, and we should too. It reminds me of Ephesians 4 too. So, so Paul wrote these things. This is, his, this is his writing. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. I think eventually that's what he was able to do with Mark and get Mark. He's very useful to me in my ministry. I can be like Paul if I'm not careful. I'm wired a little bit that way. I can um, steamroll others. My wife has, has been really helpful for me in that. I think God does that with spouses, right? To brings people in our life that are very different than us to kind of help balance us out. Let me ask you, are you humble enough to see your mistakes? And then when you do finally see them, to make it right. And, and if you struggle with that, let me ask you, why? Like, what keeps you from that? Are, are you too driven, like Paul? Is it your own pride? Is it, is it personal insecurities? Is it the sense of perfectionism in you? 
Is it this constant desire to self-justify the things that you do? Like, what is it for you that keeps you from honestly evaluating your actions in the presence of the Holy Spirit to acknowledge your mistakes and weaknesses, immaturities, sins, all of those things, and then making it right the best that you can do? I think there's a lot that we can learn from Paul here. We get a chance to see his humanity here then we also get a chance to see how he makes things right. How about Mark? What can we learn from Mark? Well, Mark's my favorite one in this passage. You know, I can connect with Paul personally. I love what Barnabas was able to do. But Mark, Mark's pretty amazing to me here. Put yourself, put yourself in Mark's shoes. Like, just try to get into his head and feel what he must have been feeling when all this was going down in Acts chapter 15. The, the apostle who had this supernatural, life-changing experience with the risen Jesus in Acts 9, who's quickly becoming the most influential leader in the church, that guy doesn't believe in you. That guy doesn't think that you have what it takes to be a frontline leader. That guy says, uh-uh, you're not coming with me on this journey. You're not committed enough. Like, how would you feel with that? You know, your cousin believes in you. He's willing to give you another chance, but, I mean, he's your cousin. He's blood. You kind of expect that. Like, how would you feel in Mark's shoes? I think it would be easy to accept that what Paul thinks as being true about you is actually true. I think it would be very easy to just accept that. I think it would be very easy to define myself by my own worst decision, to feel like I've made an unforgivable mistake and almost like give up or, or at least pull back. Like there must have been some serious discouragement and feelings of defeat here. And I think he would have felt this need for self-evaluation as well. Like, how much of what Paul said is actually true? Were there things that he needed to confess to the Lord and maybe repent of and then apologize to people for? And then I think he would have had to be thinking, and how much of what Paul said wasn't true, right? How much of it was Paul's own sin against Mark that he would eventually need to forgive Paul for? And, and what about the calling that God had put in Mark's life? Listen, God's calling on Mark's life wasn't defined by Paul. Just like God's calling on each of our lives isn't defined by anyone else. God's calling in our life is defined by God, right? Defined by Jesus. Whether or not, in Mark's case, Paul agreed or not, it doesn't really matter. But Mark would have had to spend some time praying through that. So I look at Mark, I'm like, Mark is amazing in this passage. I think there's so much that we could learn from Mark. Here's my point with Mark. Mark seemed able to own his mistakes, which probably involved repentance there, reconcile broken relationships, and then continue to grow as Christ's ambassador. Can we? Mark seemed to be able to own his own mistakes, repent where necessary, reconcile broken relationships and grow as Christ's ambassador, can we? I, I think it's just beautiful that Mark didn't define himself by his own worst mistake. 
I think it's just beautiful that Mark didn't hold a grudge against Paul, but instead, apparently, he learned from his mistakes and he moved forward. He grew as an ambassador on Christ, uh, ambassador of Christ, on mission to help the world experience the love of Jesus. By the way, I just think this is interesting. This is the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark later. I, if he would have listened to Paul, if he would have let Paul's opinion of him define his future, I don't think he would have written the Gospel. And yet we have it right here. It was probably yeah probably the first of the Gospels that was written as well, which I just think is powerful. It reminds me of a couple of verses. James 5, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I think somewhere along the way, Mark must have had to do that. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you, which is what he did. And then how about this one? Actually, Paul wrote this, and Paul did this, but it makes me think of Mark in this situation. This is Philippians 3.13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if any of you, if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. I just love it when Paul says that. The mature think this way. If you disagree, just give it a little time. God will reveal it to you, right? But what does he do? He forgets what's behind. And he's strained forward. He's strained for what was ahead. See, Mark seemed to do those things well. Here's my question. How about you? Like, are there Pauls in your life, Pauls in your life that have hurt you? You know, maybe that, that didn't believe in you and discouraged you? You know, maybe, maybe this week you need to spend some time, just you and the Holy Spirit, honestly evaluating your actions and seeing if there's some things that you need to take ownership of and maybe repent of in your life. Have you allowed other people's view of you to define your life and your calling? Or are you listening more to God's calling in your life and God's future to your life? Have you forgiven and reconciled with the people that have hurt you? And I admit it's not always possible to do that. Sometimes that's not realistic. Do you need to forget what's behind you and remember and strain forward to what's ahead of you that maybe God is calling you to be a part of. I think there's so much that we can learn from Mark. I think Mark's kind of the, the unseen hero in this story. So let me end with one more thought because I really believe that this passage, like there's such good stuff for us to learn from, from those three guys, but I really think this passage, part of the purpose of this passage is to point us directly to the cross. So, so here's my last point. God does not define his children by their worst moments, but offers us grace, forgiveness, and limitless fresh starts. I think Barnabas, like, I think part of the purpose of all of this, that God, like, made this happen, predestined this somehow to happen, is to point us to, like, Barnabas is a type of, of Jesus character. Barnabas is a type of God character. What he did for Mark 
in so many ways is what Jesus did for us at the cross. We're not defined by our worst moments. Romans 5, 8, for God showed his love for us in this, that we were still, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still in our worst moments, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's not defined by your own shortcomings or your own strengths. It's a gift from God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. See, I, I think this passage has obvious implications for us in our relationships with others. But I think the beauty of this passage is we go, and God is a God of second chances. God is a God that for his children, and this is unique to being his child, for his children, he doesn't define us by our worst moments. And we have to go to him. We have to confess to him. There's things that we have to repent of in our life. But I think this passage is a beautiful reminder for us of God's grace. And then the way the passage ends, like I, this is, I just think this is so cool. So they screw up, right? Like I think, I think they handle conflict in an unhealthy way in this part. Beginning of chapter 15, healthy. End of chapter 15, I think, is un, in an unhealthy way. But here's the beauty of it. God still uses these broken, imperfect people who I think like made some bad decisions here. God still uses them to build his church. And so what they do is they go to all of these churches and they continue to grow the people that are part of them and help more people get to know Jesus. That's what they do. And so I think, wow, thank you, Lord, that you don't just use perfect sinless people, but you use broken people like us to build your church. That is refreshing. That is encouraging. So Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for just the beauty of your word. There's so much richness and depth in it. God, we can read this. I don't even know how many times I've read this. And you just, there's, there's new things each time and new applications for our life and new reminders of how good you are and how powerful you are. God, may we take these things that we learn from Paul and Barnabas and Mark and incorporate them into our life, but please don't let it stop there. God, remind us how you see us. Remind us of the plan and the calling you have in our life even when we mess up, even when we're immature, even when we make mistakes and are unwise. You don't give up on us. You believe in our future despite the shortcomings of our past. And we thank you for that this morning. Father, we love you more than anything. And we thank you for your faithfulness, even in the times that we are unfaithful. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a message from the chapel. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about the chapel or any of our campuses, including Akron, Green, Wadsworth, Kenmore, Cuyahoga Falls, Nordonia, and Medina, please go to our website at thechapel.life.